This is an ABC podcast. Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer. It's always great to have your company. Now, when you think of Vietnam, what comes to your mind? For many people of a certain vintage, Vietnam represents the conflict between the US-led forces, including Australia, and the North Vietnamese communists, primarily in the 60s and early 70s, doesn't it? For me, Vietnam is personal. You see, my father served as a US Marine in Indochina in the late 60s and early 70s. During R&R, he, like many US servicemen, spent time in Australia, and one night, this is late one night at one of those dodgy bars in King's Cross, Sydney. <laughs> he met a local nurse. They spent several nights together during his break from fighting. <laughs> yada yada. They soon got married and I was born shortly afterwards. <laughs> so as you might suspect, I can never criticise our involvement in Vietnam. Otherwise, I would never have been born. <laughs> well, seriously, the subject of Vietnam has been subjected to lots of scholarship and scrutiny during the past half century. And some journalists believe a new book, Vietnam, an epic tragedy, that's 1945 to 75, is the best account of the war. Now, the author of that book is Sir Max Hastings. He's one of the world's great journalists and military historians, who happened to be in Saigon as a young BBC reporter aged 24 in 1971. Dominic Sandbrook, writing in the Sunday Times, he reflects the consensus among the reviewers. He says, quote, Even by Hastings' own standards, this is a masterful performance, deftly balanced, immaculately researched, and written with immense flair. Well, Max Hastings, that's a heck of a rap. Welcome back to Between the Lines. Thanks, Tom. It's always a pleasure to be here. I loved your story. <laughs> well, let's start with a quote. Walt Boomer, who went to uh, went on to become a four-star general, he was willing to do anything to get to Vietnam. This is his quote. I fully bought into this thing that the communists were going to take over the world, and this was the place to stop them. Even then, high school kids were saying, this does not make any sense to us, but I thought they were pretty stupid. Max. Well, I love Walt Boomer because I spent a couple of days talking to him for this book. And he's a hugely intelligent, thoughtful guy who's absolutely frank about the naivety with which he went into Vietnam as a professional career Marine and what he learned while he was there in, in two or three tours. And he's really thoughtful and reflective about it, which not everybody is. So some people are still very bitter about the war. Um, some people who bang on about how it could have been won. And he's one of those whom I respect enormously, who thought a lot about this, that when you're a young Marine or a young soldier, that it sounds terrible to say it now, but you don't think too much about, you assume that your country, your country right or wrong in the 1960s, anything seemed possible for the United States. I lived in America in the 1960s for two years, and America was so rich and so successful, and it was still the generation in charge that had won World War II, and they felt nothing was beyond them. So when they see these communist guerrillas out there in the middle of this place in Indochina that they hardly know where Indochina is on the map, 
the idea that if if the president of the united states says to the chiefs of staff in washington what are you going to go and do about these raggedy ass guerrillas that they would say well mr president we're not quite sure this is the right kind of war for the united states we're not quite sure these people are quite the thing now of course they say we can get in there and we can do it and people like walt boomer went in there and very bravely and very honorably with uh, several battalions of australians who mm. also showed themselves among the finest fighting troops out there um they did their damnedest, but gradually most of the ones who thought realized as they went along that this was the wrong war in the wrong place. And above all, to me, one of the most important lessons of Vietnam is that I'm no pacifist, but in the end, you can win all the firefights you like, you can kill all the bad guys you like, but unless you've got the cultural, the social, some sort of political linkage with these people, mm. then you ain't going to get nowhere. Yes, we'll get on to that in a moment, but I think we shouldn't forget uh, the lessons of Munich. I mean, this is the idea, the folly of appeasing totalitarian yeah. aggression. I mean, that feeling was widespread in Washington and indeed Canberra in the 50s and 60s, weren't they? Absolutely right. Everybody, as soon as anything came up, Eisenhower wrote to Churchill in 1954 when the French were losing at Dien Bien Phu, the battle against the Viet Minh communist guerrillas in Vietnam. And he wrote and said, haven't we learned the lessons from the experience of Hirohito and um, Hitler and Mussolini and so on? Well, Churchill um, had the extraordinary good sense, even though he was widely regarded as senile, to say, uh, if we could not save India for ourselves, I do not believe that we can save Indochina for France. The loss of the fortress must yeah. be faced. And thank God we, the British, didn't get involved. But, of course, um, your prime minister down there, um, Robert Menzies, he felt very strongly, mm. yeah, he felt here were the British pulling back from, um, from the Far East uh, through the 50s and 60s. And he felt that the only foreign policy option for, for Australia was to get closer to the United States. And in the context of the way things were in the early 1960s, that meant supporting the American cause in Vietnam. OK, but to be fair, uh, Lee Kuan Yew's, uh was Singapore's founding father. He's among others, and you yeah. quote him in your book. He maintained that the US effort in Vietnam bought time uh, for Asian third world countries like Singapore to become prosperous and stable nations. You quote Lee... If it had not yeah. been, if we had not fought in Vietnam, we would have been gone. Plausible? I'm not sure. I doubt it. But I always fit in all my books that even if, if I personally don't go along with a point of view, you, you owe it to the reader to tell them that some people do think that. And yeah, there were people out there in Malaysia, in Singapore and so on, who felt that um, that long, ghastly agony um, did buy time for the stabilization of democracies in Southeast Asia and um, prevented the domino theory from coming to pass. Now, I say I don't personally buy into that, but nonetheless, you have to recognize there is that point of view. OK, well, why did the Americans think they could succeed in Vietnam when all the available evidence indicated that other empires, the Chinese, the Japanese, the French, they'd failed? because they were Americans, that they felt the French had lost in China because they were French and the Americans weren't French. And also they went in there and they said, we're the good guys. We are, um, we're not the colonial power. We're here to help you and so on. And one thing I always think is terribly important is it's so easy to put on a 21st century um, sunglasses and to say, well, here's how it looks to us now. But when I'm writing books, I try and close my eyes and remember how things were then. Mm -hmm. And first and first of all, the United States and its allies felt that nothing was impossible for them. And 
Um, secondly, there was a real communist threat. The communist threat was not a myth that the communists, and one of the things I've tried to bring out in my book is very naive young Western protesters in the 1960s made the case that Ho, Ho Chi Minh, the father of his people, and in the same way that they had posters of Mao Zedong on their walls at college. These were not nice guys. That um, the story of what happened in North Vietnam in the 1950s and early 1960s they ran an incredibly repressive, nasty regime in which thousands of people were brutally murdered as so-called class enemies. That, um, that Now, that doesn't mean I'm trying to make the United States and its allies to be the heroes of the war, but I'm a, I've argued that North and South Vietnam were two rival tyrannies. Mm. And anybody who says the communists and Uncle Ho were the good guys um, hasn't really looked at the history of what happened down there. I mean, the terrorism, a lot of the stuff that, that went on, sure, we all know about the My Lai massacre. We know about the many um, killings of innocent people by American troops, in some cases, South Vietnamese troops in South Vietnam. But uh, terror was a deliberate instrument of communist policy that I've interviewed hordes of, of, of South Vietnamese and Americans about the ghastly, systematic... Uh, well, terror. and that's right, and the South Vietnamese did not want to live under communist rule. A lot of them, a lot of them came to believe many, many South Vietnamese became incredibly war-weary, literally war-weary, so that after 20, 30 years of war, they felt nothing could be worse than the war going on. They felt peace at any price, and that's one of the reasons they, they collapsed in 1975, and the North Vietnamese were able to sweep across the country. But when they saw what um, Hanoi did, the communists talked a lot of nonsense uh, in 75 about reconciliation. There was no reconciliation. 200,000 South Vietnamese ordinary officers and officials were sent to re-education camps in which some of them were held for 17 years, longer than Stalin kept the Nazis after World War II. And communist collectivist policies imposed not only um, um, hunger, but actual starvation. And this is the late 70s, um, um, early 80s uh, in Vietnam, it was, it, there were appalling sufferings and tragedies. But of course, the world didn't want to listen because the world had had enough of Vietnam. It had heard enough. But many Vietnamese, as we know, hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese became so-called boat people. They were prepared to risk everything, including their lives, in order to escape from this ghastly regime. And I've interviewed many, many South Vietnamese, and I've tried to put the South Vietnamese at the middle of this story because too many of the books are just about Americans uh, and what they did. And so many of those people said... Um, if only we'd realized when the war was going on what was at stake and what the communists would do to our country if they took over, then we we might have tried a bit harder. Yes, but um, I mean, this was a civil war, and you make it very clear that even if the US did not intervene, Max, there would have still been a violent struggle for the future of Vietnam, right? In the, I mean, there's an argument which I, I put in the book that I think there's a good case that maybe. Uh, the way the world was in the middle of the 20th century, that very poor Asian countries had to experience communism in order to discover what a catastrophe it was. That if you were a Chinese or a, um, or a Vietnamese peasant, then you might not be interested in Marxist-Leninist theory, but the idea sounded great of a revolution that was going to get rid of all these ghastly foreigners who'd taken over your country, who were going to get rid of landlords and moneylenders, who were going to give the land to the people. If you were an incredibly poor Asian country, then that sounded a pretty good message, and it sounded pretty good to an awful lot of peasants in the 1950s and 60s. And after they'd seen 
the, the way that the Americans behaved and the American promiscuous use of firepower, then that message seemed even even stronger. That one South Vietnamese I interviewed in California who made a great impression on me, now a very successful businessman in California, he said the other side had the monopoly of patriotism. He said, I never liked the communists, but uh, he said, um, when they kept telling me that it was so humiliating the way the Americans had taken over my country, then I had to, I had to listen. And an awful lot of Vietnamese did listen. Yeah, the power of nationalism. My guest is Sir Max Hastings. He's the author of Vietnam, an epic tragedy, 1945 to 75. That's just out by Harper Collins. Now, Max, a debate rages among historians over whether JFK, John F. Kennedy, had he lived, he was assassinated in November 1963, um, would he have prosecuted the war in Vietnam as his successor LBJ did? I'm by no means sure. I doubt that he would have sent half a million troops. I doubt that he would have launched a big bombing campaign against North Vietnam. But I do not believe he would have got out. That an awful lot of people want to believe that. And of course, we can't ever know. But Kennedy told a whole string of people before his uh, his assassination in November 63, um, he said in particular to J.K. Galbraith, he said, there's only just so many concessions that I can make to the communists in any one year and expect the American people to re-elect me. And he was all the time, as every American president was, absolutely focused on that forthcoming re-election campaign in 64. He had the Republicans on his back constantly accusing him of the Democrats generally of being soft on the commies, as went on all the way down the line. And the, the big flaw of American um, policy in Vietnam from beginning to end, it wasn't based on thinking at all about what was in the interest of Vietnamese. It was based on thinking about what worked for American foreign policy yes. and um, and for American domestic policy. One of the great conversations to me, lovely man, wonderful man I met called Doug Ramsey, who was one of the great Americans in Vietnam, who was a foreign service officer who the Viet Cong took prisoner in 1966 and held in a bamboo cage in the jungle for seven years. Mm. Well, he came out of this um, amazingly unbitter, and I was absolutely riveted by everything he had to say. And one story he told me, um, he said there weren't too many jokes um, in those seven years. He had malaria 123 times. But he said one moment um, that he said, I was being interrogated and I told my interrogators, I thought the United States was in Vietnam 10% for the interest of Vietnamese people and 90% to stop Mao Zedong. And he said they were baffled by that. And they turned around and they said, in that case, why do you not go and fight him in China? We do not <laughs> like the Chinese either. <laughs> yeah, well, back to Kennedy and indeed Johnson. They had the same advisors, you know, Dean Rusk and, yeah. and uh, the Defence Secretary McNamara, among others. Um, and you quote quite a bit of David Habelstam. Of course, he wrote the famous book, uh, The Best and the Brightest. Yeah. Um, and you say their egregious error, this is the advisors for Kennedy and Johnson, their egregious error was not that of lying to the world, but rather that of lying to themselves. Well, what's amazing is that we sometimes nowadays moan in all our democracies about the low quality of our politicians and our leaders. And there's good reason for that. But on the other hand, you look back the 60s and the people around JFK, they were um, about the smartest people on the block. These were brilliant people, and they they hung on in there with um, with um, um, with John with Johnson. I mean, he said when he felt bitter and betrayed later by the Kennedy people, and he said, "I kept on the eleven cowhounds, the the member of the um, of the Kennedy cabinet." Uh, but those people, it was in that era they just felt that the United States 
she could and should be able to do anything it wanted. It was just almost literally beyond their comprehension, the idea that um, these raggedy-ass communist guerrillas could um, could see off the full might of the United States. The, the extraordinary thing was, and one thing I've come to believe passionately, is that what really matters in all these involvements, unless you can achieve some sort of cultural and social and political link with the people on the ground, with the local people, such as the Americans never did in Vietnam, and I don't think we're too good at doing in Afghanistan or um, or um, Iraq. Uh, Iraq either, mm. um, that all the firefights and the killing bad guys is, is completely wasted motion. It was worse than that. It, it, it gets an awful lot of innocent people killed in the middle. But those people, those, those Kennedy and Johnson people, they were the can-do spirit went mad, and of course one of the worst yes. offenders, in my view, was Robert McNamara, mm. the Defence Secretary, who stayed under Johnson. And McNamara, the amazing thing is, having been absolutely sold on the Vietnam engagement right the way through from the beginning in 1961, uh, 62, and onwards, then about 66, um, he uh, he suddenly has this Damascene moment when he realised the whole thing is a disaster. And yet he stays. He stays in the job until Johnson kicks him out to go off and be president of the World Bank um, a year or two later. And how he could have gone on staying in the job and running the Vietnam War when he come to realize it was a catastrophe. I'm afraid the truth is, like an awful lot of people like that, he was in love with being close to power. Yeah. So your, um, your point, just to clarify here, that the United States, with all this technology, military prowess, the can-do spirit, the best and the brightest advisors, its action in, in Vietnam was really doomed from the start. That's your line, isn't it? It's very hard to see um, how the war was winnable. A, a brilliant guy um, whom I spent a lot of time with, an American who was a, a researcher out there um, for years and years and who I reckon knows Vietnam as, as well as any American does. And he said to me, he said, there never was a clever way to fight the war. That in the end, foreign, foreign armies, as soon as they set foot on some um, um, Asian peasant patch in the middle of nowhere out there in the paddy fields, almost even before they start shooting, that there's this huge cultural chasm between them and the local people. And the, the, the Americans were perceived in propping up um, a corrupt, incompetent government. And it was a corrupt, incompetent government, first of President Diem, and then of all these hopeless generals who were in charge. And unless you've got some reasonably... Um, some government, local government, deserving some sort of respect, then you're wasting your time and most... Yes, okay. Well, you, you obviously spent a lot of time criticising the US general on the ground, William Westmoreland, uh, for America's strategic failures. That's the prevailing wisdom. You also, as you've pointed out, criticise President Johnson and his civilian advisers, especially McNamara. But what about Nixon and Kissinger? They came to power yep. in early 69. Many historians believe they prolonged the war unnecessarily for another four years. Mm. Well, that's just to go back on Westmoreland, actually, in the book, although I don't think Westmoreland was any great general, I've said very clearly, because all the really lousy decisions were made by politicians, I don't think it's right to blame any of the generals um, for screwing up the war, because in the end, it was the politicians who sent them there. That's right. And um, they can only do what they're sent to do. And they were mandated to go and try and win an unwinnable war. Okay, Max, what about the role of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger during Vietnam? What we've now got 
which is quite extraordinary, these White House tapes, of which the last batch were only released in 2015. So it's been marvellous. I've been one of the first historians to be able to yes. make good use of them. And these White House tapes, they provide incontrovertible evidence. And there you've got Nixon comes into office in 69 with his national security advisor, Kissinger, supposedly um, the smartest guy there's ever been in Washington and all the rest of it. <laughs> and yet these people, they knew from the beginning that the war was absolutely um, um, no chance of winning. But all they were preoccupied, like all the other presidents, was to find a way of making it look okay um, so that they could um, win the 72 re-election campaign. And the amazing thing on those tapes is that Kissinger, uh, supposedly the great um, academic um, intellectual um, um, egghead, he talks more about the 72 election on the tapes than Nixon does. He's more cynical. And one, to me, one of the most devastating moments is they've been at it for three years. Kissinger's been negotiating secretly with the, with the North Vietnamese in Paris. 22,000 Americans um, have died mm -hmm. on Nixon's administration and countless more Vietnamese, all to try and find a political way out of this. Well, October 72, month before the um, election when Nixon's running against George McGovern, the um, Democratic candidate, and Nixon comes rushing in, uh, sorry, Kissinger comes rushing into the White House back from Paris. And he said, Mr. President, he said, I've got a deal better than you could ever imagine. And then he doesn't say, this is going to bring peace. It's going to save countless lives. He said, this will absolutely, totally screw McGovern. And the cynicism of these people. Mm. Now, you can say, if you want to be generous to Nixon, you can say he did what he was paid to do. He did get America out of Vietnam. But any pretense that he got America um, out with honor, um, and some of the conversations again recorded on the White House tapes, um, when he says things like um, um, to a, a, one of Nixon's cabinet, he says, my dearest wish is that uh, um, two Vietnamese nations get at each other's throats and kill as many of each other as they can because he was so fed up with negotiating with both of them. It's not pretty. I'm chatting with Max Hastings about his new book, Vietnam. He's the author of other groundbreaking books, including All Hell Let Loose, Catastrophe and the Secret War. A quick time out here and look at some of these gripping stories you tell, Max. The North Vietnamese civilian diet of stewed rat... Uh, the U.S. captain who read <laughs> the, the U.S. captain who reads Conrad and Hardy during observation patrols. <laughs> the experienced U.S. soldiers who rarely wore underpants because of the humidity. I mean, it's a treasure trove of these anecdotes, mate. Well, you're 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 very kind to say so. But I suddenly realised when I started out writing books about wars, I thought. I was writing books about soldiers and about which division went which way. But in the course of my career, not only I, but a whole generation of historians, I think, we've all realized that what we're doing is as much social history as um, as military history. Mm -hmm. And whenever I'm going through my manuscripts, I try and cut out as many as I can of the um, divisional names and numbers and all the rest of it. And, the, and I concentrate on the human stories because that's what people are most fascinated by. And, and I'm most fascinated by him, and I still, I'm getting a bit old now, I'm over 70. And I thought when I started out on this book, God, I'm getting a bit old to be traveling around the world doing all these interviews and creeping around the middle of the night in South Carolina and staying in motels. But actually, the stories these people tell, I mean, I live in England in a middle-class bubble. And when you find yourself with a, a, an infantryman, a man I liked enormously, American, who came from a coal mining community in Appalachia, and he was talking about his childhood. And he said, where I grew up in the town where I grew up, he said, every Saturday night was the same. He said, 
all the men got drunk and beat up their wives. And he said, and that included my mother. And this is a world outside my, my, my experience, thank God. But I'm absolutely fascinated, whether one's talking to Vietnamese yes. or Chinese or Russians. Um, these stories... They're what really fascinates well, me. Well, here's I an Australian that. story for you. You talk about the violence of the anti-war passions uh, that rose in a crescendo in this country, Australia, and you say, after one infantryman was killed, protesters telephoned his parents and said he got what he deserved. That's jaw-dropping stuff, Max. Yeah, it's it's it was incredible to remember now just how better things got. I'm always being told, I think the nuances... Um, of things in Australia. I think things were very bad in Sydney and Melbourne. The anti-war fever was... But I think in smaller communities out there in the country, as in the United States, that things uh, never got that nasty. But they got unbelievably nasty. I mean, there was another episode that um, I came across in one of the Australian uh, Royal Australian Regiment uh, battalion records. The battalion marching through the streets of, I think it was Melbourne, and a protester... Um, daubed herself in red paint and then went and threw herself on the on the colonel leading the parade and tried to just get as much red paint over him as she could and then over <sighs> all these soldiers. And these guys who'd come back from... Um, and they'd actually, as professional soldiers, uh, I've said in the book, the Australian New Zealanders um, showed themselves, I think, probably the finest Western infantrymen in Vietnam. And they wore they bush hats job. rather than helmets, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And they, and they, well, actually, if the Americans had been smart, they'd have done the same. The helmets <laughs> are no use to you. In there. But be that as it may, the fact is, as professional soldiers, um, they'd done the, what they were sent to do, and they'd done it very well. And it was extraordinary that the anti-war movement in, in Australia, as in America, I mean, in America, you had people spitting on the, in the streets on, on soldiers. An American Navy captain was telling me that when he was transferred back from Vietnam to Washington, he never um, went through the streets of Washington in his uniform because he was liable to be insulted. Things got that bad in the late 60s. Indeed. Okay, well, we started this segment with a quote from a US captain, Walt Boomer, saying how confident he was that the US intervention in Vietnam, you know, represented a great moral and strategic cause. Let's conclude with the last two sentences in your book, Max, which happens to be another quote from Captain Walt Boomer. Quote, It bothers me that we didn't learn a lot from Vietnam. If we had, we would not have invaded Iraq. Max Hastings. Well, Walt said, I got him to read the manuscript of my book because I always try and get some veterans to go through stuff to see. And when he saw that, he said, oh, God, he said, that's going to get me into a lot of trouble saying that with my neocon friends um, because he lives in very Republican circles these days. And um, then because he's a very good and honorable man, he said, no, he said, "Um, I said that, I believe that, so let it stand. And uh, that's why I respect him and others like him. Well, one, one should never lose sight of the fact that there were some outstanding Americans and Australians in Vietnam um, uh, alongside, yeah, some people who screwed up and some people who didn't do so good. And certainly, Walt Boomer's sort of professional, whom I admire enormously, because he always did strive to learn the lessons. The most important lesson he said to me, he said, the lesson I carried back from Vietnam was tell the truth. Well, on that note, George Will, the prominent Washington Post columnist, he says this about your book. Sometimes, contrary to Marx, history repeats itself. First as tragedy, then not as farce, but as tragedy again. 
Max, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much, Tom. Pleasure to talk to you. All the very best. That's Max Hastings. He's the author of Vietnam, An Epic Tragedy, 1945-75. to That's from HarperCollins. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. It's always great to have your company, especially during the summer. Now, if you missed anything, you can find all our interviews on the RN website. Hope you can tune in next week. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.